Throughout college, it was not an uncommon experience for me to be woken up around dawn by the intense sound of peacocks. It is a very distinct sound, loud and shrill, the kind of sound that would fit right into the soundscape of a jungle and not necessarily a suburban college in central Florida, but that's just life in this part of Orlando. Peacocks are so vital to the identity of Winter Park, where my college was situated, that the town seal bears a colorful visage of a peacock. There's a statue of a peacock in the heart of the main shopping district, Park Avenue, and there's banners and flags bearing the blue, green, and purple patterns of this unique bird. It's been that way since 2004, when the Winter Park City Commission decided to put that bird right at the heart of the city's identity by making it the seal of Winter Park. It has remained that way ever since, but the peacocks predate that seal in Winter Park by decades. Though the story of peacocks in Florida has many different origins, in Winter Park it goes back to 1950, and naturally it connects to my alma mater, Rollins College. A president of said college, named Hugh McCain, was apparently the first to bring the peacock to Winter Park. Rollins College is the only college I can think of where the president owning a peacock just makes sense. Anyway, the peacock and its mate that he owned were moved soon to an estate called Winsong, which is now a subdivision where the peacocks began to populate. McCain himself lived in Winsong. Over the course of two decades, two peacocks became hundreds and overtook the neighborhood. It's only a short hop from Rollins, and during my tenure at that little college, I'd go on bike rides through Winsong only to find myself dodging peacocks in the road as they tramped along my path. The very same birds I could hear across the water from my dorm were glaring at me as I made my way through their territory. Those around them, the houses in this neighborhood, clearly don't mind too much. There are peacock flags and lawn ornaments that dot the fronts of houses around Winsong where the peacocks have laid their claim. It's become part of their identity and they just accept it at some point. My little neck of the woods in Orlando, however, is not the only place you can find peacocks in Florida. One of my best pals, Gabrielle Khaleesi, you've heard her on this show many times, wrote about the prevalence of peacocks in Tampa for the Tampa Bay Times late last year. The relationship with the peacocks is similar, but with its own West Coast flavor. The peacocks of Tampa were, as well, brought in from out of town, but a few years earlier than they were in Winter Park. The peacocks of Tampa arrived around the 1930s, apparently part of a grove run by a man named Eugene L. Pierce. His father had opened the grove years earlier, but the peacocks that were added in the 30s turned out to be a huge attraction for those visiting this park. Though the park itself closed in the 1960s, the peacocks remained in the area and still roam this region of Tampa. Several neighborhoods have peacocks that slip through private pathways, whether they be descendants of the park run by Mr. Pierce or others that have slipped out of private ownership or local gardens. The peacocks have found ways to survive. My favorite strange spot to find peacocks is on the property of the Fountain of Youth tourist attraction in St. Augustine. I believe I've talked about this park before, mostly because I love the taste of their unusual but delicious water from the Fountain of Youth. Not actually, but you know what I mean. What you may not know is that the same property is overflowing with peacocks, especially unique white ones that stand out amongst the crowd. You can feed the birds there or just watch them roam around the archaeological park paying the tourists no spare thought. This is their land, at least for now. But the peaceful bliss described here is not always the case. Peacocks are wild animals, and they can still do strange things. 
They are not native to Florida, as so many animals are here nowadays. They have been known to be violent to neighbors, attacking or clawing people who step too close. Many people have the animals trapped and removed from their private property. Some people find them to be truly intrusive into regular suburban life, and some advocate for pushing for the peacocks to become a target of being hunted under Florida law. Now, they are not the only animal that faces such scrutiny in Florida. There are lots of animals that you would be surprised are considered pests. It is an unusual thing about our state, our weird relationship with the animals around us. From peacocks to vultures, from pythons to lionfish, Florida is filled with animals that we don't quite know what to do with. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the trouble with pests and how we define them. Florida is filled with animals that cross the border between the nature that they live in and the world that humans have created. What happens when that line is crossed? Things get complicated. Our guest this week wrote an entire book about just that. Before we meet her, I do want to warn you, this episode discusses animals and pests, and what comes along with that is hunting. So we do talk a little bit about animals being hunted and animals being euthanized. If that is not something you're comfortable with, feel free to move on from this episode. But if you are ready, let's meet our very special guest this week. My name is Mary Roach. I write nonfiction books, and the most recent one is called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Her name is Mary Roach, and I will admit it to you as I admitted it to her. I am a massive, massive fan of her work. I read her book Grunt back in 2016 for a project in college and soon fell in love with her writing. I read Spook and Stiff soon after and have been a fan ever since. What makes Mary's work so unique for me is that she picks a topic like the lives of soldiers or the belief in the afterlife and dives into it in dozens of different ways, speaking to experts and asking weird questions that only a person like her could think of. She speaks to scientists, anthropologists, people who are living the life that she is writing about and tries to cover it from all facets. She got her start in writing, making pieces for magazines, but after magazines started faltering, she started thinking about writing books. And I didn't go to journalism school, just, uh, you know, I had a useless liberal arts degree, <laughs> like so many of us, and I had no job skills, and I was like, oh, no, 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 editing, copy editing, I wasn't very good at that, and so gradually just kind of shifted over, did some public affairs work, worked out at the San Francisco Zoo and um, as a public affairs person, was not very good at that, because... I'm just not good at spinning stuff. I'm not, you know, clearly when somebody from the press would call, I was more on their side, you know, like at one point someone called and said they'd heard a rumor that a cheetah was sucked dry by ticks or something, (laughs) ticks or fleas. I don't know. And I was like, whoa, how much blood would that be? How many insects would it take to suck dry? And, you know, my boss is like, what are you doing? Just deny the rumor. (laughs) (laughs) So not very well suited to a career in public relations. But I mean I think yeah. that strength I think that strikes directly at something that is really interesting about your books is is and something that I've always loved and something I try to model is you you ask 
questions and do sort of math on stuff that don't it just doesn't cross people's minds it's the kind of stuff that people don't think about or they don't take a second to ponder they just accept things as fact why do you think you where do you think this sort of interest in digging deeper on strange questions like that comes from i don't know there may be something wrong with me i don't know i don't know i think my wiring is just Funny, maybe? I'm not sure. I, I can't point to anything. It's just who she is, but that knack for asking strange, interesting questions has propelled so much of her writing and why her books are so unique. Which is how she came to Fuzz, a wonderful collection of interwoven stories about the fascinating, bizarre relationship between human beings and the animals around them. Animals are wild, they don't think like we do, and we often find ourselves colliding. Sometimes metaphorically and sometimes literally which yeah, which story well, in the book was the first one you sort of collected right yeah it's it's rarely the first story that appears in the book the first place i went for this was the jaywalking ungulates wow was the deer <clears throat> the deer in the headlights chapter uh was the first that i reported i went out to uh ohio sandusky ohio where uh this guy travis devault was doing research into a, a why why animals particularly deer at night just stand there and look at the headlights as they come closer <laughs> uh, so that was the first uh, the first chapter I reported that is a great example of the kind of story you'll see throughout her book. There is a chapter about bear and panther attacks, a chapter about bears eating human waste, a chapter about charging elephants in India, and another about thieving monkeys. We share so many spaces with animals, and we expect something from them, but they do whatever they want with no care for our presence. That often leads to serious altercations, but we'll come back to that in a moment. One such area in the world where they have these problems with animal and human interaction is New Zealand, and the situation that's happening on that island around the world from us is very similar to a problem that we face in Florida every day. In New Zealand, their program is called Predator Free 2050, as in the year 2050. New Zealand has has a, a profound problem with invasive species, a, a problem of their own making. If you go back to, I'm, I think it was the early 1800s, I'd have to check the book, the dates. But but New Zealand, when, when, when um, Europeans came to settle in New Zealand, they had these acclimatization societies, and, and what that did is introduced some animals from the homeland that they missed and they wanted to kind of try to make their new surroundings feel more like home and that sometimes included bringing in animals one of the animals they brought in was rabbits and there are no land predators at that time in new zealand that's why the birds were flightless they had no reason to fly away because there were no predators so now they brought the rabbits in okay fine the rabbits were not killing the birds but the rabbits multiplied like crazy because nothing was killing them or feeding on them and then the people decided, well, let's bring in something to kill the rabbits. So they brought stoats over. They imported stoats, which are very effective predators. And the stoats uh, may have killed some rabbits, but they certainly killed a lot of birds. They, the chicks, they ate the eggs. The stoat is probably not an animal that you'd heard of. I hadn't until I read the book. The stoat is a relative of the weasel. It's an unusual little predatory rodent that hunts animals like rabbits. They're quite nasty, but if you just look at them, they're kind of cute, but they can leave a lot of destruction in their wake. 
So they kind of created this problem with stoats, also rats, also feral cats, and possums were brought in for the fur trade, and the possums uh, also have affected these, these species. So the natural biodiversity of New Zealand is tanking because of uh, also rats. Did I say rats? Anyway, yes. uh, rats, possums, and stoats, they're going to attempt to completely eliminate them from New Zealand, which is a huge undertaking. And also, you know, uh, not a pleasant one for the rats, stoats, and possums. Sure. <laughs> so it's a tough problem. On the one hand, you understand why people want to preserve their native biodiversity and, and not see this tremendous number of birds and reptiles go extinct. On the other hand, uh, <clears throat> mass poisonings uh, are kind of hard to swallow. Um, so it's an interesting conundrum. And I spoke to someone who his role is trying to uh, create uh, more humane methods of killing these animals, which if you know if you're going to do that as a nation, as a society, if you make that decision, you know, it behooves you to do it in a humane way. It's a huge problem in New Zealand, one that makes animal lovers' skin crawl. To protect an animal, we have to kill a different animal. It's a moral quandary that so many in the world have to grapple with, including here in Florida. For us, we too have animals that need being killed as soon as humanly possible. Our situation is a little different, though, from the one in New Zealand. In New Zealand, they are dealing with animals that kind of just seem like regular old animals, predatory rats and weasels. The animals that need to be removed from Florida's ecosystem are quite unique. I'll talk about three specifically. They are the feral hog, the lionfish, and the Burmese python. The first time that I saw a feral hog was driving along the side roads of the Canaveral National Seashore, searching out ghost towns. It bolted behind my car in a flash, a dark blur against the pavement. Florida has, by recent estimates, half a million feral hogs. The whole country has about 9 million spread out over nearly all of the continental states. Only Texas has more than Florida, but it's believed that Florida is where the feral hogs of America got their start. They spread out over the course of 500 years after one of the Spanish explorers of Florida brought them along. It's not clear if it was Ponce de Leon or Hernando de Soto. Either way, the hogs escaped their captivity and soon ran amok through the Florida wilderness. According to The Guardian, quote, Wild hogs are considered the most destructive invasive species in the country and the greatest wildlife challenge that the U.S. faces in the 21st century. End quote. That's kind of a big deal. Because of their size, their hygiene, and their brutal tusks, they affect water sources and carry disease, but they also devastate agriculture, attacking livestock, and ripping farmland to shreds. They have a specific size and aggression to them, which makes them hard to catch, and even harder to track. They leave chaos in their wake, and with human development pushing closer to ecological spaces, the hogs are getting closer and closer to the doorsteps of regular people like you and me. But there are people out there who take up the difficult task of removing these animals from the Florida wilderness. You see, while most Florida animals have a regulated hunting season, such as deer, bobcat, and turkey, smaller animals in Florida have no regulated season. Animals like raccoons and skunks and rabbits are open season. You can hunt them whenever you want. But along that list is the wild hog, which can be hunted year-round. 
The Guardian profiled a hunter who tracks down and kills these hogs without a Florida hunting license. That makes him a poacher. But he says in the article that most law enforcement agencies don't seem to care. Poaching feral hogs in Florida is quote-unquote semi-legal because everybody wants those feral hogs gone, no matter the cost. We're going to go now from a land animal, a mammal, to a fish, specifically the lionfish of Florida. The hunting season for these animals is similarly open. Wildlife commissioners want these things gone so bad. You've likely seen a lionfish probably in an aquarium. They're those strange large fish with those orange-brown stripes up their white bodies and small tendrils that stick off the sides. Like I said, you've probably seen them in an aquarium, which is precisely the problem. The lionfish was a popular addition to any aquarium back in the day because of their unique look, but when people didn't want them anymore, scientists believed the fish were just chucked into the ocean. They populated, as animals are wont to do, and now they are ravaging our reefs. Lionfish are known for those spines that stick off of their body, which are themselves venomous. They are predators by nature, and when they arrive to a coral reef, they destroy the native fish and eat up animals that otherwise would not have this type of predator in their ecosystem. They also take food from other native predatory fish. They're an interrupter, so to speak. And because of this, lionfish hunting season is year-round. There is no bag limit, meaning you can take as many as you want, which is a very rare thing in Florida fishing regulations. There are really tight rules about the size and amount of fish that you can take, but that is not an issue with lionfish. You can take as many lionfish as you want. No bag limit, no size limit. The state even hosts yearly tournaments to promote lionfish hunting. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission itself hosts the Lionfish Removal and Awareness Day every weekend after Mother's Day to promote the removal of these predators. And even though the lionfish is itself a deadly predator, they are likely secondary when it comes to the real monster of Florida wilderness, the Burmese python. This animal is huge. And as long as it is hunted humanely, they too can be hunted year-round. They are everywhere in the waters of South Florida, and many people speculate as to how they even got there. We have discussed this before on the show, but they are easily the most commonly discussed of the invasive species, but that is because of the impact that they are having. They are ruining the lives of gators, wading birds, all sorts of creatures in the Everglades and its surrounding swamps. They're not the only creature that are having a negative impact, but it's certainly the most unique, let's say. Our friend Craig Pittman has traveled with and written about the python hunters of Florida. I'll include his article about it because it's just next level fascinating. It's, it's such a good read. They are some of so many hunters who go out into the Everglades and its surrounding wetlands to nab these snakes before they ruin the food web of our delicate ecosystem. But the problem may be worsening. An article from the USA Today last week shared that the pythons are starting to be seen in more northern spots of the Everglades, making their way into a larger ecosystem. Now they can be found in the Arthur R. Marshall Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. That is a lot further north than the Everglades. That's basically at Delray Beach. So now it's getting even closer to Lake Okeechobee, which means they are pretty close to not even being in South Florida anymore. It feels like there isn't enough of a dent being made in python population, despite the amazing amounts of effort being done to keep them at bay. The python just keeps surviving. 
But here's the thing. The thing that makes this really complicated. The things that we define often as pests, like the dangerous hog, lionfish, and pythons, or even the screeching and mildly irritating peacock, are not always invasive. Yes, there are plenty of invasive species in Florida, plants included, which we'll talk about later this season. We didn't even talk about bamboo or the invasive vines, we'll talk about that later. But sometimes, the things that are pests in Florida were here long before us, animals that become problems once they're in human space, but they were here first. As I mentioned, Mary wrote a lot about bears and cougars in her book. Her chapters were in the western part of the United States, where mountains and forests are more interwoven with communities, but we have these problems in Florida as well. We have our own cougars in Florida, we call them the Florida Panther, which more often than not are at risk due to being struck by cars when they cross roadways. As for bears in Florida, we have the Florida black bear, and they do find themselves in tricky situations because they are hungry creatures by nature. They seek out food in people's homes or in garbage cans. If you hike anywhere in bear country, you'll see bear-safe trash cans locked and set a certain way to prevent access by the humble, hungry critter. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission gives dozens of recommendations to keep the black bears disinterested in approaching homes and, and human spaces, but there's only so much we can do. Quote, between 2009 and 2012, the FWC logged 17,769 bear-related calls from the public. End quote. That's a lot. Luckily, around that period, the actual attacks of a black bear on a person were incredibly low. Only 14 from 2006 to 2014. That, comparatively, is a very low number. This means that black bears in Florida are probably less likely to be euthanized for harming a human as frequently as other states. The situations where black bears are harming humans are just few and far between, to say the least. Mary spoke with people who have to deal with black bears and grizzly bears and brown bears out west and sees how much it has an impact on them, the things that they have to do to keep people happy and feeling safe. And there really isn't a consensus. And even in the United States, there's two very, very different opinions. And it ranges on the extremes from, you know, never under any circumstances should you kill a bear or a cougar that's harmed a person to this animal's on my property, I'm going to shoot it in the head. <laughs> so there's there is not a consensus that it is a very uh, broad cultural divide. Um, the people who deal with this professionally are affected by that in that, you know, their people who work for wildlife management agencies uh, are charged with uh, protecting animals, but more than that, uh, keeping the public safe. So when they do come in and, you know, if there's a bear that's becoming aggressive and breaking into houses, sometimes even when people are home, that bear is considered a, a threat to public safety and they'll set a trap and the animal will be destroyed. And they, these are by and large, uh, like people who studied wildlife biology who got into this job because they love the outdoors and they love working with animals. I'm saying by and large, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing here. Sure. But so, so, and it's, it's a very hard thing to do for them to have to put down one of these animals. And then on top of that, they get death threats from um, animal rights people and it's a really really hard job 
emotionally, it seems to me. Did you get a lot of sort of commentary from people working like about how difficult it is for them? Like, yeah. did they say a lot about how it's like taxing yes. on them? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, again, I didn't, I didn't do a poll or anything, but, uh, <laughs> there's like, yeah, it, I spoke to three people who talked about that in some detail about what it's like and just talked about, you know, they were speaking sort of generally about their colleagues. I mean, I, I don't, I, I mean, it's, it's really hard to generalize about a whole occupation. There could be people who got into that job because they love shooting animals. I have no idea, but the people that I spoke to, um, were mostly uh, had a background in wildlife biology and that was the worst, absolute worst part of their job. I talked to one person uh, in Colorado, this person who I uh, spent a day with on the job, and he talked about how he'd had to put down, destroy, that is, uh, a female bear and her cub because they were both breaking into homes repeatedly. And he said, I had to think about how, I had to give some thought on how to do that. I didn't want the mother to see this done to the cub and vice versa so i tranquilized one and then killed the other and then went back and he's like and just to hear him describe this like the mood in the truck had become really heavy and dark you know yeah it was just it's just an awful part of the job and 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 it's frustrating for them because the reason this is happening is because people don't bother to get a bear resistant container, keep it locked, keep their, I mean, that the bears are being attracted by the mistakes of humans. And so the, uh, it's, it's our fault when it happens. So they, uh, it, it, I think that there are people who probably come to like bears better than people. I, nobody said that I'm saying that. Yeah. It's tough. It's, it really is. It's hard. And, and it weighs on wildlife commissioners and wildlife experts. It's something that we are struggling with. We didn't even talk about the impact that gators have. Gators can get into altercations with humans as well. And sometimes those gators are euthanized for attacking or even killing a human. It's hard. We share space and sometimes we are bad at sharing space. But animal control, pest management, whatever you want to call it, it's not all about hunting or killing. I'm glad to tell you that. Sometimes pest management is being a bit creative to deal with an animal that is not exactly attractive to that area. Take our peacocks, for example. Though many find them to be irritating and demanding, and even though they are invasive to this ecosystem, many have just adapted to living with this very loud and colorful bird. That's life. It certainly makes the neighborhood more interesting. I have a very irritating bird that lives outside, a, a killdeer, that's what they're called. But they are not invasive, killdeer are native to Florida, but sometimes late at night I can hear that killdeer screaming outside my window and it drives me insane. You know I'm a bird lover, I cannot stand this bird, but what are you going to do? She's got to put her baby somewhere, so I try not to complain too much. But one story in Fuzz really catches my eye. There are these vultures in the Everglades that like to raise a little hell, let's say, and wildlife managers have had to get creative in how they deal with this animal. I'll let Mary tell you this one. 
in the Everglades, and I, f- I forget exactly which, there's a boat launch in, uh, ever, in the Everglades. There are actually a couple of areas that are impacted by these vultures. WLRN writes about the Royal Palm slash Anhinga Trail area, the Nine Mile Pond, and Flamingo. These are all areas that are super popular for tourists and travelers, and they are places where these vultures that Mary is about to tell you about are seen. Where there's been a problem with with vultures coming in uh, and defiling parked cars, they like to pull on the pull the rubber off windshield wipers and pull the seal from the sunroofs off, and so they vandalize parked cars. And there's been interesting research done out of the Florida branch of the National Wildlife Research Center. They were trying to figure out why this happens and also figure out how to dissuade the vultures yeah and one of the things that they tried is something weird that's that does work it's of an effigy it's it's a and you can do effigies with other birds but the vulture effigy is one that seems to work really well which is you take a dead vulture or something that approximates it and hang it upside down with its wings out okay and that apparently freaks the vultures out who knows why? I mean, we can anthropomorphize and say that they're like, get the hell out of here. Somebody's hanging. Someone's mutilating our guys. Some, there's some weird cult here. <laughs> get out of here. Who knows why it works? You, you, uh, But anyway, it, do, it does work. So this, uh, and I wish I could tell you which little parking lot in the Everglades. It's in the book. I, yes, it's I will include it. But, but they, so they, they, they hung effigies from the trees and it kept the vultures away, but the park rangers then had to spend all day reassuring freaked out visitors who were like, who were like somebody hung a bird by its feet in the parking lot. What is going on? So they like, finally they took away the effigies and they just put a box of tarps and it says, cover your car with a tarp. Yeah. Vultures will rip apart your windshield wipers. Like I said... It's not all hunting and chaos and invasive monsters. Sometimes it's grotesque displays to scare off (laughs) vultures and visitors alike. I cannot even imagine what that looked like. It, It must have been a true horror show. I left Mary's book thinking a lot about what she discussed in it, about the absurdity of human spaces being separated from natural ones and how those lines become blurred. I don't think that there is an easy answer about what to do with animals and human spaces or humans and animal spaces. I just think sometimes we need to be more cautious because, frankly, the animals don't know any better. That's why there's animal crossing signs. Go for tortoise crossing. I once saw a sign on Sanibel that says, Low Flying Owls. The animals of Florida are just living their lives. The least we can do is be a little considerate to them. They are our neighbors, after all, and perhaps the most neighborly thing that we can do is give them a little bit of space. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, or if this is your first episode... Welcome. There are some wonderful stories waiting for you. I have written about a lot of stories connected to this episode in the past, but I'd mostly recommend listening to the episode that details the Python problem in the Everglades, which actually is called After Hurricane Andrew, because a lot of people speculate that the Python problem in Florida was caused by Hurricane Andrew, but our friend Craig Pittman, who is a guest on that episode 
has his own thoughts about that story. So give that episode a listen. It's a really fascinating tale. If you are looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to WFMPod.com for transcripts of past episodes, photographs from trips around the states, and soon-to-come transcripts of this season and the season before. I'll be updating those transcripts as this year comes to an end, and hopefully by the beginning of next season, all of them will be updated for you to enjoy this last year's entire run of episodes. Head to WFMPod.com for more. You can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. There is a Drink More Water sticker, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker, and a sticker featuring the show's subtitle about Florida by a Floridian. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy and keep an eye out for new updates about merchandise very, very soon. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch from Cast and Clay now if you did enjoy this episode please consider leaving a five-star review it means a lot to me to know what you like about the show and it helps me know how i can change it tell me what you like tell me what you don't like i am glad to adapt to what the listeners of this show want to hear and especially because i've got a new season cooked up right now i want to know what you want to hear so you can reach out to me on twitter instagram and facebook at wfm pod you can send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com i've even had people reach out to me via that email about possible episodes episodes that are currently in production so reach out i look forward to hearing from you i really mean it I have to thank Mary Roach. I I don't even know where to start. I am so grateful that she took the time to talk to me. But I have to tell you, Mary Roach and I had a very, very long conversation. And so much of that stuff can't just be left on the cutting room floor. So this Friday, a bonus episode of pretty much the rest of my conversation with Mary Roach because you've got to hear our chat. She is the best. I told her things about Florida. She told me things about writing. You've just got to give it a listen. So I'm super, super proud of our chat. So tune in Friday, this upcoming Friday, Black Friday, for a wonderful chat with an incredible, extremely intelligent author, Mary Roach. Thank you to her for being on this episode and the next one. And if you're looking for a great read, Fuzz by Mary Roach is that one for you. If you care about this thing, about animals and humans interacting, this book is all about that. And it's written in Mary's unique, hilarious style. So thank you again to Mary Roach. So this week, there will be a bonus episode on Friday, but next Monday, there is a special episode headed your way. One that I've been working on for a little while, one that I'm excited to talk about. Oftentimes, when we talk about the environment, little things get forgotten. Things that we don't think about as parts of the environment. And I read a book this year that was all about that. It was called The Sound of the Sea. It's written by a woman named Cynthia Barnett, who is an amazing author and environmental reporter, who wrote about the extremely vital role that seashells play in our environment. So let's talk about the jewel of Florida's coasts, our seashells. I will see you on Friday for our extended conversation with Mary Roach and on Monday for an exploration into Florida's seashells. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, get your vaccination to support those around you, and look into getting your booster shot as soon as that is available to you. And of course, as always, drink more water. And if you celebrate, have a happy Thanksgiving. Say hi to your family for me and maybe tell them to listen to this show. I hear it's a pretty good driving and traveling podcast. Have a good week. See you Friday. Mm-hmm.